Do you love Halloween, horror movies, the paranormal, and cats? I know I sure do. And if you're like me, then I know you'll absolutely love Wicked Cat Clothing, the clothing line created for anyone who enjoys the creepier things in life. From stylish tees and hoodies to beanies and coffee mugs, Wicked Cat Clothing is your one-stop shop for all your spooky clothing needs. As an added bonus to her amazing clothing line, brand creator Stephanie is giving all of my listeners 30% off your entire purchase if you use code ROGUEDARKNESS30. That's ROGUEDARKNESS30. All the links and information are down below in the description box, so definitely give Wicked Cat Clothing a look and continue spreading that spooky cheer all year round. The children were found nude and hogtied in a creek in a wooded area in West Memphis. Their bikes were found by a pipe nearby. The boys were so mutilated, investigators thought the murders were part of some kind of satanic ritual. The world of ritualistic child abuse. They would sacrifice animals. Does it make you want to hate murder, or does it make you want to do murder? Let's explore the darkness of mankind, one crime at a time. Welcome back to Rogue Darkness, the podcast that uncovers how the misinterpretations and misinformation surrounding witchcraft, the occult, and other beliefs have led many to do unthinkable crimes. From ritualistic killings and the demons that live in all of us, to exploration of the macabre and delving deep into the unknown... Let's explore the darkness of mankind, one crime at a time. I'm your host of the Grim and Gruesome, Raven. Let's go rogue and get right into today's chilling crime. The abductions and murders of three young boys from West Memphis, Arkansas, presumed to be committed by a trio of three local teens, who quickly coined the name the West Memphis Three. Let's start off from the very beginning. The victims involved in this heartbreaking case were three best friends, eight-year-old Stephen Branch, Christopher Byers, and James Michael Moore. I'm first going to give you a little background on each of the victims so you can have a better idea of who they were and how the crime committed against them shook the entire town of West Memphis. Steve Branch was the son of Stephen Sr. and Pamela Branch. It was reported that Stephen Sr. and Pamela had divorced when Steve was just an infant. His mother Pamela was awarded custody after the divorce, and she later remarried a man named Terry Hobbs. Their family had then consisted of Pamela, Terry, Steve, and his four-year-old half-sister, Amanda. When the crime I'm about to discuss took place, Steve was just eight years old, four feet and two inches tall, and he weighed around 65 pounds and had blonde hair. He was reported to be last seen wearing blue jeans and a white t-shirt, as well as riding a black and red bicycle. Steve, as well as the other two victims, were all second graders at the Weaver Elementary School and were heavily active in their local Cub Scouts. Christopher Byers was the son of Melissa DeFear and Ricky Murray. Melissa and Ricky divorced when Christopher was just four years old. Shortly after the divorce, Melissa remarried to a man named John Mark Byers, who went on to eventually adopt Christopher as his own. 
John Byers had a son from a previous relationship named Sean, who was 13 at the time. So Christopher and Sean became stepbrothers upon the family uniting. Christopher was eight years old, four feet tall, weighed around 52 pounds, and had light brown hair at the time of his death. He was reportedly last seen wearing blue jeans, dark shoes, and a white long sleeve shirt. The third victim, James Michael Moore, who went by his middle name Michael, was the son of Todd and Dana Moore. Growing up, he lived with his parents and his older sister, Dawn. Michael was eight years old at the time of his death, four feet, two inches tall, and weighed around 55 pounds, and was reported to have brown hair at the time of his death. He was reportedly last seen wearing blue pants, a blue Boy Scouts of America shirt, and an orange and blue Boy Scout hat, and had also been riding a light green bicycle. Michael had enjoyed wearing his scout uniform even when he was not at the meetings. Out of the three boys, Michael was always considered the leader, always being the one to guide them and essentially lead them on whatever path or quest that they chose to venture on together. So now let's move on to the crime itself. On May 5th, 1993, Steve, Michael, and Christopher were reported missing in West Memphis, Arkansas. The first missing persons report was made to the police by Christopher's adoptive father, John. The boys were allegedly last seen together by three of their neighbors, who had reportedly stated in their affidavits that they had seen the three boys playing together around 6.30 p.m., the evening they went missing. Neighbors also claimed they had seen Terry Hobbs, Steve Branch's stepfather, calling them to come home, but there had been no response from the boys. And that is when everyone began to worry as to where the trio had gone. It was reported that the initial police searches performed on the night of May 5th were limited due to a lack of knowledge of where the boys had gone or their whereabouts. Friends and neighbors also conducted a search that same night in hopes of finding them, which included a search of the location where the bodies would later be found. Since the search of the area was brief and not very thorough, The search party unfortunately did not see the boys during their initial hunt. The next day, on May 6th, the police began a more in-depth search for the boys around 8 a.m. Searchers canvassed the entirety of West Memphis, but it reportedly focused primarily on Robin Hood Hills, where the boys were reported to be seen last. Despite their thorough search of the area, though, the search team unfortunately still found no sign of the missing boys. Luck would have it, though, that on that very same day, juvenile parole officer Steve Jones had reportedly spotted a boy's black shoe floating in a muddy creek that led to a major drainage canal located within Robin Hood Hills. With another thorough search of the area underfoot, the horrific discovery that was everyone's worst fear was unfortunately revealed. There, within the ditch, lie the bodies of three deceased boys. It was determined that the bodies were, in fact, Steve Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore. The boys' bodies had reportedly been stripped naked and were hogtied with their own shoelaces, their ankles tied to their wrists behind their backs in a merciless fashion. The boys' clothing was found further down in the creek. Some of the clothing had been twisted around sticks that had then been thrust into the muddy ditch bed. 
The clothing found had been mostly turned inside out, and it was reported that two pairs of the boy's underwear had never been found at the scene. Upon inspection of the bodies, it was reported that Christopher Byers had lacerations to various parts of his body and mutilation to his scrotum and penis. The autopsies performed by forensic pathologist Frank J. Peretti concluded that Christopher had died of multiple injuries, while Michael and Steve both died of multiple injuries with drowning. Christopher was determined to be the only victim out of the three who had drugs in his system at the time of his death. The initial autopsy report named the drug found to be carbamazepine, which is known to be an anticonvulsant medication used primarily in the treatment of epilepsy and neuropathic pain. After closer inspection, though, it was determined that the drug findings were related to medications Christopher had been prescribed for his ADHD, so it was concluded that they were not given to him by the perpetrators prior to his murder. Upon first glance, when discovering the three boys' lifeless bodies within the ditch, the police had initially presumed that the boys had been raped. However, once the autopsies were performed, it was concluded that the boys had not been sexually assaulted. Now, you may be asking yourself, who could have committed such atrocities and against children? Well, let's move on over to the presumed killers in the case. And just to make it even more of an infuriating one, to this day, the actual murderer or murderers involved is still heavily debated and even considered undetermined. The main suspects that were tried and ultimately incarcerated for the murders of Steve, Christopher, and Michael were 17-year-old Jesse Kelly Jr., 16-year-old Jason Baldwin, and 18-year-old Damian Eccles. Jason Baldwin and Damian Eccles had been arrested prior to the murders on accounts of vandalism and shoplifting. Due to their bad string of habits and negative behavior, Miss Kelly and Eccles had ended up dropping out of high school, while Baldwin had actually earned very high grades and was extremely artistic, with a talent for drawing and sketching. Eccles and Baldwin were close friends who had bonded over their similar taste in music and fictional stories. Along with that, they especially bonded over their shared loathing for the prevailing conservative Christian cultural climate within West Memphis. Although Baldwin and Eccles knew Miss Kelly from school, they had never been especially close friends with him. Damien Eccles' family was poor and had reportedly received frequent visits from social workers. We can only assume his lack of motivation in school and frequent acts of lawlessness were brought on by his home life. Now, although Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., Jason Baldwin, and Damien Eccles were the main suspects at the time, there were actually other suspects that were considered to be involved in the murders. Among those additional suspects were two local teenagers, Chris Morgan and Brian Holland, both who had drug offense records and were no stranger to law enforcement. Both young men had abruptly left town four days after the bodies were discovered and were reportedly headed for Oceanside, California. The reason they had been initially viewed as potential suspects was due to their quick leave and the fact that they had had previous interactions with the three victims, albeit briefly. The two were picked up by California police. During their interrogation, Chris Morgan claimed he many times blacked out due to his constant drug and alcohol abuse. 
He mentioned he may or may not have had involvement in the murders, but quickly recanted the statement when he knew he was considered a suspect. The California police ended up retrieving and sending blood and urine samples from Morgan and Holland to the WMPD, but there is no clear inclination that the WMPD had even investigated the samples further in regards to the possible involvement in the murders. Morgan's recanted statement or potential involvement in the murders would later be debated in trial, but it was ultimately barred from admission as evidence in the case and essentially was thrown out. Another potential suspect that was briefly looked into in correlation to the boys' murders was an African-American man who was referred to as Mr. Bojangles. According to local West Memphis police officers, on the evening of May 5, 1993, at around 8.42 p.m., workers in the Bojangles restaurant located about a mile from the crime scene reported seeing a black male who seemed mentally disoriented. The man was reported to be in the ladies' room within the restaurant and was said to have been bleeding, in which he had also brushed up against the restroom walls. Officer Regina Meeks responded to the call, taking the restaurant manager's report through the eatery's drive through window. By the time the manager had given their recounting of the instance, the man had already left the premises, with no further inclination as to where he may have gone. It was reported that the police did not even enter the restroom on the day of the instance, so no evidence was obtained at that time. The day following the discovery of the three victims' lifeless bodies, though, the Bojangles manager, Marty King, reported the incident police officers once again, leading them to inspect the ladies' restroom more thoroughly. Marty King gave the officers a pair of sunglasses he thought the suspect had possibly left behind, and it was at this time that the officials took some blood samples from the walls and the tiles within the restroom. Police Detective Bryn Ridge, who was on the scene at the time of the bathroom check, had testified that he had later lost those collected blood scrapings. But Eccles' attorneys got a letter from the custodian of records for the West Memphis Police Department saying some of the evidence ended up lost or misplaced and some destroyed by a fire. How a DNA sample that could tie into a horrific slew of murders just up and vanished seems extremely suspicious in its own right. A hair identified as belonging to a black male had also later been recovered from a sheet wrapped around one of the victims, so the unknown man who had visited the Bojangles restaurant could have very well been the murderer who was never caught or brought to justice. As mind-boggling as this whole case is in regards to its suspects, how each was handled, and the sheer disregard for pure justice among the law enforcement involved, it's about to get that much worse. Reports show that police officers James Sudbury and Steve Jones believe that the murders that had taken place had many cult overtones, and that Damien Eccles was a likely suspect because he had a particular interest in the occult. Officer Jones reportedly believed that Eccles was very capable of murdering children if given the opportunity, simply because Eccles' track record of run-ins with the law. The police had interviewed Eccles on May 7, 1993, just two days after the bodies had been discovered. During a polygraph test, Eccles denied any involvement in the murders. The examiner conducting the polygraph reportedly claimed that Eccles' chart indicated deception, 
which persuaded law enforcement of his guilt that much more. On May 9th, during a formal interview held by Detective Bryn Ridge, Eccles mentioned that one of the victims had wounds to the genitals, which law enforcement then perceived as incriminating, as not all information regarding the murders had been released publicly. After a month had passed with very little progress in the case, the local police continued to focus their investigation on Damien Eccles, interrogating him more frequently than any other suspect on their list. They later reportedly stated that they didn't view him as a direct suspect, rather he was a source of information to help them solve the case. On June 3, 1993, the police interrogated Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. Despite his reported IQ of just 72, which, side note, would categorize him as borderline intellectual functioning, and him just being a minor at the time, Miss Kelly was ultimately questioned alone, without his parents present during the interrogation. Which, if that doesn't spark up red flags regarding the whole investigation and how it was handled by the officials, I don't know what does. Miss Kelly's father reportedly gave permission for Miss Kelly to go with police, but did not explicitly give permission for his son to be questioned or interrogated, especially not without them present. Miss Kelly was questioned for approximately 12 hours. Of those 12 long hours, only two segments, totaling just 46 minutes, was recorded. The recorded audio displays Miss Kelly confessing to the murders, but he quickly recanted his confession, citing intimidation, coercion, fatigue, and covert threats from the police interrogating him. Miss Kelly has stated that he was scared of the police during this confession and just wanted to tell them what they wanted to hear in hopes that they would let him go. Though he was informed of his Miranda rights during his interrogation, Miss Kelly later claimed he did not fully understand them. With the IQ he had, it shows that he was taken advantage of in order to get a confession, regardless of the validity of it, and that is extremely angering. A few years later in 1996, the Arkansas Supreme Court ruled that Miss Kelly's confession was voluntary and that he did, in fact, understand the Miranda rights as well as the consequences of providing a recorded confession. Parts of Miss Kelly's statements to the police ended up being leaked to the press and was then quickly displayed on the front page of the Memphis Commercial Appeal before any of the trials even began. Shortly after Miss Kelly's first confession, the police had arrested Eccles and Baldwin. Eight months after his original confession, on February 17, 1994, Miss Kelly made another statement to the police. His lawyer, Dan Steidem, remained in the room and continually advised Miss Kelly not to say anything and to continually plead the fifth. Miss Kelly ultimately ignored his lawyer's advice and went on to detail how the boys were abused and murdered. His lawyer, Steidem, would later go on to be elected as a municipal judge and has since written a detailed critique of what he firmly believes are major police errors and misconceptions during the entire interrogation. Being involved in the case firsthand, he brings light to issues that may have otherwise been unnoticed or even swept under the rug. Miss Kelly was tried separately from Eccles and Baldwin, who were tried together in 1994. The Bruton Rule 
which was created due to a case from 1968 where a defendant was deprived of his rights under the Confrontation Clause if a confession by his co-defendant was introduced in their joint trial, regardless of whether the jury received instructions only to consider it against the confessor, played a large role in Miss Kelly's trial. His confession could not be admitted against Eccles and Baldwin, hence why he was tried separately. All three of the defendants pled not guilty to the murders. On February 5, 1994, Miss Kelly was convicted by a jury of one count of first-degree murder and two counts of second-degree murder. The court sentenced him to life in prison, plus 40 additional years. Three weeks after Miss Kelly's conviction, Eccles and Baldwin went on trial. The prosecution accused all three of the defendants of committing a satanic murder. They were the unusual kids in town, dressed in black, they listened to heavy metal music, they were goths before goths were, uh, were fashionable, and so they were easy targets. The prosecution called Dale W. Griffiths to the stand, who was viewed as an expert in the occult, to testify that the murders were in fact a satanic ritual. On March 19, 1994, Eccles and Baldwin were found guilty on three counts of murder. The court sentenced Eccles to death and Baldwin to life in prison. Despite the mess of investigations done and unorganized officials handling potential evidence linked to the murders, it seems like these three young men were quickly convicted for a crime they may or may not have even committed. I know there's a lot of names in this case, and it does tend to jump around a bit, so we can only imagine how frustrating this was for the families of the victims, as well as any innocent suspects. In May 1994, just three months after their trials, the three defendants appealed their convictions, but the convictions were upheld on direct appeal. Two years later, in June 1996, Miss Kelly's lawyer, Dan Steidem, was preparing an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court to get more involvement in the case. In 2007, Eccles petitioned for a retrial based on a statute permitting post-conviction testing of DNA evidence due to technological advances made since 1994, which might provide exoneration for the wrongfully convicted. However, the original trial judge, Judge David Burnett, disallowed presentation of this information in his court. Judge Burnett's ruling, though, was ultimately thrown out by the Arkansas Supreme Court on November 4, 2010, because all evidence was sought in order to bring proper justice. So now I'm going to move on to some additional evidence that surfaced after the three teens' convictions and how there was plenty of evidence that ruled out the three for involvement in the murders, from strands of hair found at the scene that matched Steve Branch's stepfather Terry Hobbs to a knife that belonged to Steve that was found on Terry's nightstand, and then also another knife provided by John Mark Byers that had blood DNA on it. Although blood DNA had been found on the knife that John provided, he claimed it was from him and Chris cutting deer meat during hunting season. After some testing, inconclusive results surrounding the knife led to accounting as insufficient evidence, and it was not formally used to convict anyone. It was also reported that there had been teeth marks on Steve Branch's forehead at the time the bodies were discovered. Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., Jason Baldwin, and Damien Eccles all had imprints of their teeth taken to compare to the marks but no correlation was found among them. It was determined that the markings were not from human teeth at all, rather a belt buckle. 
John Byers later came forward and admitted that he had whipped his son with a belt shortly before Christopher's disappearance. This was a major break in the case. Despite all the evidence lined up against the three boys, they were still ultimately convicted and continuously appealed for their freedom. After weeks of negotiations following the Arkansas Supreme Court ruling, Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly were released from prison on August 19, 2011, as part of a plea deal. The three had entered into an Alford plea deal, which is a legal mechanism that allows defendants to plead guilty while still asserting their actual innocence. In cases where defendants concede that prosecutors have sufficient evidence to secure a conviction, Stephen Braga, an attorney with Ropes and Gray who took up Eccles' defense on a pro bono basis beginning in 2009, was the main driving force for whom had negotiated the plea agreement with prosecutors. Under the plea deal, Judge David Lasser vacated the previous convictions, including the capital murder convictions for Eccles and Baldwin, and ordered a new trial. All three then entered an Alford plea to lesser charges of first and second degree murder, while verbally stating their innocence. Judge Lasser then sentenced them to time served, a total of 18 years and 78 days, and then they were each given a suspended imposition of sentence for 10 years. If any of them reoffend, they could be sent back to prison for up to 21 additional years. The actual murderer or murderers involved in the horrific murders of Steve Branch, Christopher Byers, and James Michael Moore is still unknown to this day. Despite many people's assurance that the three suspects were in fact the murderers, there's actually more forensic evidence supporting their innocence versus their guilt, which is why they were ultimately let go. Going off of the notion of police coercion and false confessions, mixed with drug and alcohol abuse and mental illness, it's hard to say what really happened, and that's the saddest part of all. The fact that many cops believe the murders had occult ties simply because one of the suspects had an interest in occultism is not only ridiculous, but disgusting. Not only were the victims severely let down by not finding their actual murderer or murderers, but so were the innocent teens who lost years in prison due to spotty investigations and false pretenses. So that was the angering, ongoing, an unfortunately still unsolved case of the West Memphis Three. Definitely let me know your thoughts on this case and if you think the cops were correct by convicting the teens and if you think they actually were involved or if you think this could have been a massive cover-up to protect the real perpetrator. It's honestly one of the most sickening and not to mention confusing cases I've ever researched. There's so many twists and turns and names thrown about I'm sure we all could use a good stiff drink after this one. But if you have any questions or suggestions regarding this case, or any others, feel free to contact me at roguedarknesspod at gmail.com. You can also DM me directly on Instagram at rogue underscore darkness. I'm always interested in hearing your thoughts on cases I've covered, as well as hear any suggestions you may have for future ones. All the links to the articles referenced in this episode, as well as my socials and contact information, are all down below for your reference. I'm frequent on Instagram and Twitter, so be sure to follow me on those to stay up to date on any important announcements or posts. Both my Instagram and Twitter profiles are at rogue underscore darkness. 
And if you like what you hear on Rogue Darkness, please consider sharing the podcast with your family and friends, and also by leaving a rating and review on Apple iTunes or wherever else you can leave a review. It's a great way to help the show out and to get it more noticed. And I do have a Ko-fi page, so if you ever want to check it out, the link is down below in the description for reference. I may eventually switch over to another platform like Patreon or Buy Me a Coffee, but I'll definitely keep all of you in on the loop if that ever does happen. And with that said, that concludes this week's episode of Rogue Darkness. The darkness is all around us, and I can confidently say that reality truly is more terrifying than fiction. Until next time. Thank you.